Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was born in Mumbai. Yeah. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Emmanuel Turaturenye was raised in the small town of Ngoma, Rwanda. He grew up alongside his parents, five siblings, two cousins, and grandmother. His father was a pastor, and his mother farmed the land. Their family was well-loved in their community, and truly embraced the meaning of their surname, which translates to neighbor. But in the spring of 1994, everything changed overnight, as neighbors turned against neighbors at the start of the Rwandan genocide. Emmanuel survived the unthinkable, and has since found his way to forgiveness. Julia Fioni has a story. I was born in this town called Ngoma, but it has many villages and growing up we didn't have water so we had to climb hills and go look for water and also we didn't have electricity so we had to walk miles miles in the forest to cut the firewood i remember like before we go to school the first thing we would do get up around like 5 a.m go fetch water and then i imagine walking those miles and then bring water at home, and then go to school. It was a little bit tough, but when you're, you know, when you're a kid, sometimes you think, you know, that's maybe that's how life was supposed to be. I grew up. Um, in six children. My father also has to take care of his brother's kids, who were my cousins, but we call them, in my culture, we call them brothers. And they were living with us, and we um, used to do uh, a lot of playing and, you know, do games, soccer, barefoot. Basically, my family was big, so we, you know, we could even make our own team, soccer team. We were many there, so... We also had a lot of also, you know, kids. Kids are always friends. Sometimes when kids see other kids, they don't they don't see nothing else. They see that, yeah, we are the same. Of everyone in his family, Emmanuel's grandmother was special to him. She lived next door, and he liked going over to listen to her tell stories. She was a really good storyteller. So sometimes she would tell us different things they used to do. Sometimes, you know, you know when it, your, you know, your grandparents start, start telling you things they used to do when they were young. And it's really very, way far to believe. She used to tell me a lot of stories, how they would fight lions, where the lions would come to kill their cows, and how they would fight hyenas, all that. Just how, you know, with bare hand and the stick, you know. Sometimes I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so, but... She was always telling me a lot of inspiring stories, like how strong they were, you know, when they were young. My father, um, 
He was a priest in a, in a church of Anglican church. He was a good man, very respected in the community. He would do everything to make sure everyone is okay. Also share love and um, he was um, very strict dad, you know, but uh, in a kind of, in a loving way, in a kind of, you know, educating and empowering to make sure He's not raising lazy, lazy kids, but he's raising, you know, kids who will make, who will be able to make it. I remember, like, even growing up, how he used to teach me how to sing all the, those notes, and sometimes I miss it. And, um, yeah, and I would go with him to church every Sunday and pray drums and just have fun. I mean, that's how I thought, you know, you're a pastor's kid, you just follow what are they doing so I know he rescued my soul his blood has covered my soul I believe it I believe The church that once brought joy to Emmanuel and his family soon became a place of refuge. There, people would ignore the tension that was building with neighbors. It was not a new tension. For hundreds of years, Rwandans lived together regardless of tribal identity. Then Germany and Belgium colonized the region in the 1800s, and people were divided. Colonizers worsened the economic imbalance between tribes favoring Tutsis. And by 1926, Rwandans were forced to carry cards labeling their ethnic identity. Such labeling led to decades of hostility between Hutus and Tutsis. The first time Emmanuel remembered facing this kind of violence was in second grade. The first time I knew I was a Tutsi, that's the time I went to school and I was asked by a teacher to stand up. He said, Hutu stand up. I stood up and then he slapped in my face. Yes, you're not Hutu, you're Tutsi. That's the first time I've ever heard I was Tutsi. And that's when I asked Dad, what is a Hutu and the Tutsi thing? What is it? Because as a priest, he was serving everyone. He didn't have any difference. He didn't have any preference. He didn't even talk all that kind of stuff even in our, in our house, household because he wanted to raise um, kids who respect and love everyone. So, I mean, growing up at Tutsi, I mean, I was bullied a lot. I was really called different names, cockroaches, snakes, all that kind of. Actually, I was dehumanizing my, since I was, I was young. My father was not, because being a Tutsi was also not allowed to go to school. He couldn't go to school because all the Tutsi people were excluded from the government. They couldn't do military, they couldn't do doctor, you know, medical school, all those. So what happened even to me, when I finished my primary, I was not allowed to go to pursue my high school. So I was really denied with a lot of opportunities. So I didn't grow up like other kids. Decades before Emmanuel was born, Rwandans rebelled against Belgium. By 1962, Hutus controlled Rwanda and turned against Tutsis. After nearly three decades of violence, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, 
known as the RPF, was established. This marked the start of a three-year civil war. The war officially ended in 1993, but tension remained. From this came the Rwandan genocide. I can't even explain how many times we even spend outside of our house in the night because we are scared. Some of my common indicators, people were put in jail for no reason because they thought every Tutsi was a part of the RPF. And the tension grew up and then boils and then kept boiling, kept boiling. Yeah, I remember being scared every day. They will come, even at our house, with their machetes, and then they would say all those words. You don't belong here. One day, we'll send you back to where you come from. That's one of those examples. So they were, what they meant was they would throw our bodies into Nile River. My family has been in Rwanda from generation to generation. I can't even tell you up to eighth, eighth generation. But we were told that we are not, we didn't belong there. They always told us we, we are from Ethiopia or we are from Sudan. I mean, they would say random stuff that just would make us feel, put, a, put us in that state of mind thinking we're no longer human beings, but we are cockroaches. On April 6, 1994, an airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down. Soon after, the RPF and Rwandan government blamed each other for the assassination. Emmanuel and his family knew they were in trouble. He was only 16 years old. I remember when, when we heard on the radio that President Habyarimana plane was shut down. The first thing I saw my dad, he was crying. He cried, meaning he said, it's over. It's over. We are come, they are going to kill us. We can't even escape because everywhere there is roadblock. We are surrounded. On Easter Sunday, Emmanuel's father preached at his church. The genocide started four days later, just hours after the president's plane was shot down. It was my turn to make lunch that day, and I was cooking outside over the fire, and uh, my little sister, Amin, would just beside me, and I would give her some food because she was really close to me. I was her favorite brother. And um, so as we were cooking, all of a sudden we started hearing, marching, and singing. I heard people shouting, shouting, singing, and they saw a crowd of people coming with machetes, guns, and crabs. Some I knew in our church, the others I didn't know. So when they started running toward us, I scooped my roses and then we ran. That day, my father was in the neighborhood praying for the sick people. As he was walking home, they caught him and they killed him. My grandma, the house next door, she was killed in her house. I was last born, and my mom were inside. They were killed there. Our fourth born brother, Stephen, 
who was taking care of the goat and sheep in pasture, who was killed there. And the three also cousins who were living with us, they were killed in our house that day. Our old brother, uh, he was so strong, he was trying to free the country so they can save his life. Unfortunately, they caught him while he was trying to flee, and they killed him. Our third-born brother, he was living in another uh, area with uh, my grandpa to my, mas- my, my mom's side. Of course, he was too young to hold national ID. For that reason, he was not killed. I remember before my dad passed away, was before he was killed, he told me, that meant, if you survive, take care of my family. That's the last word I've ever heard from him. In the days leading up to those final words, his father preached about love to hundreds of Hutus and Tutsis. Those in attendance were some of the same people that came to murder his family days later. So that day, it was really a wrong day, a wrong night. Of 11 people in our household, only three of us survived. It was me, Amina, and Benazir. So as all this was happening, because we wanted, you know, to be able to survive, no one of us wanted to die. That's when we, well, we went to seek for refuge at the district office, which was a big government building. Probably from our home to district office was 10 miles. But those 10 miles felt like 100 miles. I remember running and hiding in the forest and running. It was raining. And also there's other crowd, other people also who were running for their life. So... I just followed them. I, I didn't even know where to go. But since they were going to district office, I thought maybe it's a good idea. It's a government responsibility to protect its people. But I learned my lesson. So we run and we hide in the bushes. We spend the whole night just, you know, running to save our lives. Until the next day we reach a district office. We thought we were, you know, expected to be protected by the people. There was probably 6,000 people who were there who were seeking for refuge, who were seeking for the protection. I remember spending there for almost three days with no water, no food, nothing. I remember just so hungry. And then on the fourth day, that's when they brought us food. But that food they brought us was a kind of a trap so that they can kill us while we are focusing on food. Before we could even eat anything, we were suddenly surrounded by a government and a militia who started shooting and killing people at the district office. When I realized what happened, I shouted to my little sister to run. I ran too. So uh, my baby sister went one way and I went another way. Um, in night, we found each other, both of us just wandering. So I can't really express how much happy how I felt when I saw her. It was a miracle. I thought she was dead. Even after finding his little sister, Emmanuel was still in survival mode. His entire body felt numb. At that moment, he remembered a very close friend of his father's named Komondo. 
She lived nearby, but the problem was she was Hutu. Emmanuel didn't know what to expect when he ran to her house that day. So we went there, and then we were hungry and just shaking, and then we told her, can you take us in? So she fed us. That's when that's the one she, that she confirmed that she would protect us. She would do everything in her power to make sure we are safe. Emmanuel and his sister finally felt protected, but only for a moment. Soon, Komondo's son was coming home. He was part of the Hutu militia. Hassan came because already he knew us, just asked the mom what these kids are doing here. And then her mom told his mom told him, hey, if you ever even think, even teaching one of these kids, I will kill you by myself. That's like if a, some, if a mother or a parent said that word in my culture, you better understand. There is no joke there. Luckily, his son understood. Komondo devised a plan for Emmanuel and Amina. Whenever the Hutu militia showed up, they would hide under the bed. I had long legs. It was really hard even to fit all of it there. But it was like she made sure she turned off all the lights so that, you know, if they had to come inside, like to do just normal check, no one would even be able to find anything there. But um, it was really terrifying. And then her son would stand outside of the house telling the militia there was no one there. But the fact of him being a part of the killers, those killers, they really trusted his words because he was one of them. I think she was, um, she saved our life. She should have chosen a different route. She should have given up on us like other did. She should have thrown us out of the house. But the commitment and the friendship she had with my family, especially my dad, it was unbreakable. So what I would say, friendship, love and respect always wins. Soon the RPF took over their region, rescuing Emmanuel and his sister. They no longer had to run, but the killing continued for another three and a half months. That's when Emmanuel joined the RPF himself. It was really hard. Within 100 days, over 800,000 people were killed. Over 500,000 women. They were raped and killed. The facts that I saw public restroom, which became like mass graves, houses were burned down with the people inside in it. I saw that. To me, it was my time to fight back, to say, no, this has to stop. So, so when RPF uh, uh, took over the city, that's when I joined. And until, um, you know, the whole country was taken over by RPF, which is, you know, brought Rwanda together and then they have to rebuild the nation again. For two and a half years, Emmanuel fought as a soldier with the RPF alongside his three cousins. Sticking by his father's teachings of love and respect, he never killed anyone and instead led rescue missions. So after a couple of years, that's when, you know, I get out of the military and that's when I went to school. And then 
I got a degree in my culture engineering and the other one in economics. So after I graduated, I started working with the government as a government agronomist, you know, teaching people how to do all that. And um, But since, you know, even though I, I got degree, I have all these, that things everyone, you know, always want to have in the life, but still my heart was still heavy. You know, I always tell people, no matter how much education you have, but if you have a trauma, if you have trauma, trauma kills your soul. Trauma does not care how many PhD you have, does not care how many masters you have. It will kill you. Despite his efforts with the RPF, Emmanuel started to despair. He tried everything to forget the genocide. I felt like life had no meaning especially in Rwandan culture, was when you lose family, you lose power, you lose your pride. So I had no pride. I had nothing. So I used to have all those flashbacks and being scared I'm going to be chased again. And then I thought, also, even though I got those degrees, but still in my heart, I thought my, my life was worthless because of uh, things I experienced. That's when I started even using drug abuse, smoking marijuana or that. To me, I felt like life had no meaning. I felt like I wanted it to, you know, I didn't, I, I wanted to, I just didn't want to live like that. But I didn't want to kill myself. But I wanted someone to be blamed for my actions. Instead of me killing myself, police kill me through the fight. That was, <laughs> that was my plan. I didn't want to kill myself. I just want to do something stupid so that someone can be blamed for my death. So I remember one day I was just walking, you know, uh, just high like a kite. I was very high. And um came across this policeman, the guy I knew. You know, in the military, we were together. In the military, we fight. We, you know, we were together fighting to stop genocide. And then... I remember reaching out to grab his gun, and then he pushed me. And then I remember shouting at him, hey, shoot me now. And then he looked to my face, no, boy, I know what you're trying to do, but I'm not going to do it for you. After a few days also, you know, being high, just laughing at myself, I remember just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, I hear a voice, like a preacher, like my dad's voice. The voice said, Emmanuel, I looked around. Again, I looked around. I remember the voice saying, do you remember how your father would always do everything to make your life better? Do you think he's proud? That's when I felt really hit me so bad. That's when I, I stopped drinking. That's when I stopped using all those drugs abuse. After hearing that spiritual voice, Emmanuel felt comfortable going to church again. He shared his story with his cousin and went to church with her that week. But when he sat down for Sunday service, he realized he was still wounded. And then I'm in the church. I was really, I was really angry at God. I gave up on God. I said, if God really exists, why did he give up 
on people. Why did he let my family die? You know, questioning God, that's kind of things I went through. So I remember being in a church, singing in the choir, like other people would do. And I would say, God's love, God do this. And, and, and then, but still inside my heart, I still have that grudge because the church in Rwanda had both Hutu and the Tutsi inside. And the problem was some of our church members, some of their family members committed the genocide. So they always wanted to revenge against them so that they can see what they, can see what they did to us. The preacher that day preached about the story of the prodigal son who misused his share and then, you know, messed up all his life. That message really touched my heart. That's when I started just remembering all these good words, this good advice my dad used to give me. That's when I, you know, I started hearing. That's when I started feeling God's love. But it, it was a long process for me. But... Uh, he, he was life-changing. Emmanuel saw his healing as an opportunity to forgive those who were part of the genocide. He realized he needed to learn how to love and forgive himself before he could truly forgive others. It took me years and years just to accept the facts. First of all, I had to accept the fact that my parents and my family died. I had also to go through grief phase. I didn't have time to grieve for them. I didn't have time to honor them. Therapy really helped me a lot. Therapy really helped me to understand and also to, uh, to be able to discover the emotions and other things I was feeling inside. The anger and the resentment that was really in my heart. That therapy really helped me to take all those things out so that I can feel whole again. I knew one of the things that will set my heart free is to go to even the village where my family were killed and proclaim forgiveness, even though they didn't ask for it. In 2007, Emmanuel traveled to his hometown of Nagoma to volunteer alongside the people who harmed his family years ago. He hoped there'd be an opportunity for forgiveness and ultimately reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation is really a tricky part because it's the work of the heart, not the work of the brain. I think forgiveness involves one person, who is you. And reconciliation involves two. So I needed two of them. So what it means, forgiveness, you can forgive someone without reconciling with them because you have safety issues. So reconciliation, that's the restoration of the relationship. I didn't come to accuse what they did, but I just came to help them. So I was not there to accuse him, hey, you did this. I was just there just to show up, like, you know, be a good citizen who helped the people who also try to improve, you know, community life. After attending um, a couple of uh, monthly meetings, three families come to me and they said, we know, you know what we did and the harm we caused against your family. We are here to repent. I cannot explain how much I cried in front of them. Because that moment, that's when I understood the work of my father's spirit. That's when I, I was free. After the genocide, Emmanuel recalls many Hutu people working to locate the bodies of loved ones. 
Some even admitted to their actions and helped honor the lives of those who were murdered. He reflected on these moments the day he himself embraced forgiveness. You just let God do his work. You just be there. So I put myself there, just do what I was supposed to do, just, you know, and God will do the rest. Because he told me, I know you're weak, you're not going to be able to do it, but I will do it through you. Just go. That's it. In 2008, Emmanuel's friends opened an English-speaking school for children of missionaries and NGO workers living in Rwanda. Emmanuel was helping with the music program when he met a traveling missionary named Danielle. Emmanuel knew he liked Danielle soon after he met her. It wasn't long before they became friends and Danielle started visiting Emmanuel at his church. Five years later, they were getting married in Kigali, less than a three-hour drive from his hometown of Ngoma. In Rwandan culture, wedding's a big deal. It's not like 30 people, 40 people, no. It's Weddings, community, like, they have to be involved in everything. Because at the time, they really celebrate you, the new life you're going to start. So I planned my wedding. I remember just making the cards, invitation cards. And I have, like, three, four hundred cards, and then I started counting people. I don't have people. I don't have four hundred people. Majority of my family were killed. Right? It's just me and my sister and a couple of cousins here and other there. And then some of them, even their life is really hard. They're not going to even be able to make it to Kigari because life is tough, even to get transport. It's not like here in the United States where owning a vehicle, it's a necessity. <laughs> owning a vehicle back, it's a luxury, it's a luxurious life. Emmanuel decided he would travel back home to invite everyone in his village, both Hutu and Tutsi alike. He was seeking genuine reconciliation. Guess what? They showed up. And I saw this big bus come to my wedding, and then I saw this. Wow! The whole church was fully packed. It was like a Sunday. <laughs> That's how my wedding was. But... Signed with a lot of people. It was like more than 400 people. It was a big wedding. The country of Rwanda spent decades recovering from the genocide. Since then, a new constitution was created alongside two public holidays. Identifying anyone by tribe or even denying the killings is considered a crime. Students are required to take courses on the genocide, and trauma therapy is readily available to everyone. I'm also very grateful how far Rwanda is coming. It's growing fast. And uh, even calling someone a Hutu or Tutsi, it's a crime. We don't no longer have national ID that has a Tutsi and a Hutu in it. Everyone is a Rwandan. Looking back, um, I think I was the lucky one. Not because I deserved to survive. I would say I was the lucky one among the few ones. And also, I was also left to tell the rest of the world when the whole world fled, when, the, you know, when uh, my family was under attack. I think people need to know. They need to know what happened. They need 
also to learn from it and also take preventive measures so that these things never happen again, you know. But people will always be people. And you can't, you know, the only thing you can is just love your neighbor as you love yourself and the love and the respect for all, no matter what kind of background you come from. In the summer of 2016, Emmanuel and his wife moved to her hometown of Portland, Oregon. Alongside working as an Amazon driver, Emmanuel is a public speaker sharing his story of survival and events across Portland. Here he is kicking off Genocide Awareness Month in April of this year. It was really long journey. Since I released the anger in my heart, now I sleep peacefully. In forgiving, I amended myself. In reconciliation, I found peace. I tell this story so that what happened to me never happened again. I cannot fix the past, but I can fix the future. Thank you so much. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced and edited by Julia Fiaoni with post-production by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by Senka Raman and Julia Fiaoni in February 2002. Our executive producer is the ever-enthusiastic Senka Raman. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon for the use of their space to record this interview. And this episode is made possible by a generous contribution from the Oregon Cultural Trust. Many Roads to Hear is looking for radio producers, especially those from immigrant communities and communities of color, to join our team. If this sounds like you, please email mrh at theimmigrantstory.org for more information. And to listen to more stories, please visit us at theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.